This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Big Ed Kemper. Obviously has a temper, but you'd never know it listening to him speak these days. Back when Ed was killing co-eds, there was something clearly bothering him, and that something was his mother. Every girl he took, no matter the level of deviance, of depravity he explored with them, in the end, he was left feeling unfulfilled. Ed was killing his mother over and over again and having fun with the fantasy treating victim corpses, decapitated heads like ashtrays to put his angst out in. But it was never going to be enough. Kemper thought that it wouldn't have to come to this, that at the very least he would become caught or go insane in the process of committing the most heinous criminal acts that his big brain could conceive of. It seems that the cops, the courts, the psychiatrists were bad at their jobs. But the real issue was that Ed Kemper was too good at his and he couldn't be caught. And hard as he tried, he couldn't lose his mind either. So to end it, Ed did the only reasonable thing he could conclude to do. And now, he feels much, much better. Jack brought us in on a haunting note, didn't he there, Up? He did. I just ate a cracker. Yeah. <laughs> Caught you mid-bata. That's why I said something just as quickly as I could. <laughs> Anyways, we are back yeah, yeah. for part three. You ready to bring this home up? I'm so ready. Part three of the Ed Kemper series, the finale. We are getting ready to wrap up on this story of this gigantic turd and then send his ass packing back to the California medical facility where he will probably soon perish because um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but he had a stroke in 2015 is now almost morbidly obese and is also riddled with diabetes. I guess what I'm saying is we're getting ready to wrap up Ed's story, and it's highly likely that Ed is also getting ready to wrap up his story. That was very poetic. I liked it. Thank you. Like I said, though, we're, get, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's get back on track. Uh, when we last left Ed on part two, he had convinced a team of psychiatrists that he was a thriving, productive member of society. Uh, and that led the state to the state of California to seal any wrongdoings in Ed's past, freeing him of any legal shackles resulting from the double homicide of his grandparents. Um, that being said, though, he had also committed a total of three brutal murders in the months prior to that appointment. Mm. He also did a lot of dismemberment and decapitated head fucking, which isn't, uh, that's not very chill. Yeah, I don't really. He's not very chill right now, Op. He's, one would say, acting a little s- bananas. As he'll say later. <laughs> exactly. The old bumble book. So let's just jump right, right into it. You want to? Yeah, let's do it. Now, after the murder of Aiko Koo, and hopefully the listener went right out of part two into part three here. So we don't have to do a lot of refreshing. But after right. the murder of Aiko Koo, Kemper does something that would prove not beneficial to his mental health. And he moves back in with his sadistic, overbearing mother, Clarnell. 
What a mistake. Yes. Yes, at this time, I believe 22, 23 years old. Moves back in with Mama. I am pretty proud that I was able to dig this next bit up because I've never heard it on any other podcast, and I wasn't aware of this until I started doing the research for this series that we're doing. It's also around this time he meets a 17-year-old blonde girl while hanging out. There's actually two stories as to how he meets her. One is that they were that he was hanging out hanging out at the Santa Cruz beach and he bumps into her. The other is uh, he had a worked part time at a gas station and her father owned the gas station and he bumped into her there. But regardless of how it happens, he meets a 17 year old little blonde girl and her name to this day has been hidden due to her age and because of the crimes that Ed would later commit. So uh, for the sake of storytelling, we will call her for the remainder of this big Rhonda. Okay. Now, I have no reason to believe that she's overweight or anything. Uh, according to Ed later, she was a uh, a beautiful, petite young lady, so she's probably not big, but we're going to call her Big Rhonda. I was going to go with Pajama Pants Gretel, but I like Big I like Rhonda better. You call her pajama, pajama Pants Gretel, and I'll call her Big Rhonda. Okay, deal. So Big Rhonda was a junior at Turlock High School in Turlock, California, two hours away from where Ed was in Santa Cruz there. Big Rhonda and Big Ed started dating and are now in a semi-long-distance relationship. Ed doesn't, however, he's no stranger to driving long distances considering his past as a 1970s murder Uber driver. So he goes and sees her pretty regularly, two hours away. So Ed's got a girlfriend, Big Rhonda. Big Rhonda. So keep in mind that for, and this is not a a short-term relationship either that we're going to quickly throw aside. Keep in mind that for the remainder of this story, up until the point that Ed gets caught, he does have a girlfriend, and that is 17-year-old Big Rhonda. Okay. Now, in the past, when Kemper wanted to buy or, like, borrow a gun, he had to get them from one of his friends at the California Highway Department. Uh, You know, obviously with his criminal record and it being California, where gun laws are probably fairly strict, he wasn't legally allowed to own a gun. So he would just borrow one or buy one from one of his buddies under the table. There's no actual table, though. They're out. That's a, that's a phrase. That's a saying. Just out in the open. Out in the open, yeah. Probably at a in the parking lot of a Lowe's or something where they would buy. Mm. By the way, yeah. by the way, Op, his nickname at work, Ed's nickname at work was the forklift because of his ability to carry 50-pound bags of concrete, one in each arm, with incredible ease. He could just throw them around like a pillowcase full of feathers. I thought maybe he was called that because he just ate a lot. Well, that's probably that, too. He probably did eat a lot, but his nickname, and Ed has a lot of nicknames, but his nickname at work was the forklift, and his nickname at the jury room where he drank with the cops was Big Ed, and his nickname by mother was Piece of Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or Big Piece of Shit. This is a big piece of shit. A very large You know what his grandma shit. called him? Nothing. She's fucking rotting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, the last thing she called him was... Uh, old people dying. Classic. They've been doing that for so long. And old people have been dying since the beginning of time. They have. It's been That's a very common occurrence since day one. Anyways, now that his record was sealed and basically erased... He was now able for the first time in his adult life to purchase any firearm he wanted 100% legally. Over the counter. Over the counter. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they were probably all over the counter because you probably can't buy guns legally in a parking lot somewhere. Unless it's like a, maybe a convention. 
Get rid of yeah, the parking enough. lot convention. There are those. They raise the ire of everyone. Include, you know, they can be a little sketchy too, I guess. So, now on a rainy, gray, cloudy day on January eighth, nineteen seventy three, Ed Kemper goes into his favorite gun shop in Watsonville, California. And buys a 22 caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol with a six-inch barrel. Now I call these uh, just so you can get a visual of them up. I call them Nazi pistols because of how much they look like the Lugers and Mauser, Mausers that the uh, ger- the Nazi the ger- that Germany used in World War One and World War Two, and because of how similar they look, they, they're the ones that have the skinny barrel and then they kind of yeah, they're ugly guns. They're not they're they they're are ugly, ugly pistols. Very, very bottom heavy. Like that handle seems like it's all of the weight, which also would make kind of a snappy pistol. Like it would be hard to keep that on, you know, not a lot of weight up front. So it would seem like it'd be hard to aim and be very accurate with them. I agree 100%. It's the worst pistol that maybe he could have picked out to in, to impress young ladies. Yeah. I would it say. It's probably a little bit of that, um, you know, trying to be sensational. You got a gun that looks like a World War, yeah, German World War II pistol. It, you know, it's going to generate more conversation if you just got a little, like, a, a little Smith Colt. & Wesson that's boring. Yeah, Colt. Just a boring Colt. Because I always, like, as a rule of thumb, back whenever I was in the dating world, I tried to stay away from anything that the Nazis, like, whenever I was wearing, picking stuff, like accessories. If I accessorized, yeah. never used accessories that had, like, swastikas. Or anything. Yeah. On. It's like a turnoff. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing will drive a vagina up faster than a sem- than a swastika. And and you know it's just a just a couple more minutes in the wardrobe. Just a couple more minutes of thoughtful placement of proper, you know, attire. You can avoid those things. Like uh, sometimes I'd almost leave the house and be like, oh, I shouldn't have a red armband on. I guess. Yeah. Ah, damn it! I grabbed my shirt that has the swastika on it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just you know, avoid that. Well, quick side story. I was in advanced math. In sixth grade, I took uh, trigonometry, and I'm in there with these, like, super nerds, like Kajal Patel and the gang. That's what they called themselves. It was Kajal Patel and the gang. I wasn't really part of that gang because I, uh, I was different than the other kids. I was um, not you had, smart. You were in Crips. <laughs> I don't know why I was in that class. Anyway, I had this uh, billabong shirt on this one day in class, and it had this like old 1950s couple on the back, and it said, we surf, do you? You know, it was the 90s. What can I say? Actually, that was probably the 80s, actually. Anyway, the kid behind me, Michael, he drew a swastika on the forehead. I couldn't feel it. He drew the swastika on the forehead of the the, the man in the 50s picture on the back of my shirt, and my teacher caught him. And he was like, Michael, what are you doing? And he's like, nothing. And he comes over and he sees it. And this teacher went off, just lit up on Michael. And then after all of that, Michael, being not a smart kid socially, goes, I don't understand. What's the big deal? That's just six million dead Jews. What is the- <laughs> this teacher, who also wasn't very socially astute, might I say, being a you know trigonometry teacher to sixth graders, he goes, well, I guess this doesn't mean anything either. And he just holds up two giant middle fingers to the whole class. And I swear he kept those flags flying for like, I don't know, a straight minute and just burned holes into all of our faces with his stare. And we were all like, oh, wow, who's going to report him? (laughs) (laughs) And in his defense, he had a little bit to be upset over. And you said he taught trigonometry. Uh, Yeah. Is that like weapons handling? Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's a proper trigger. (laughs) 
mathematically with this pistol. I do trigonometry. <laughs> yeah, it's the shooting of trees is what that is. It's trigonometry. Now, Ed would say after he got this twenty-two caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol, and this is his quote, quote, I went bananas after I got that twenty-two. <laughs> now, one could argue that things were a little bananas prior to this. Just a little bananas. <laughs> Just a little. There's a lot of decapitated head fucking and dead grandparents and rape. And I would say that's in court. I would say that they would be like, listen, Ed, everything you're doing was a little bananas. Yeah, that he would put that on the level of bananas. That's you're right. That's a that's a stretch. <laughs> Now, immediately after purchasing this pistol, the urge to kill kind of takes hold of that again. And on that very same day, the same day that he picked out his twenty-two, he goes out hunting on the campus of UC Santa Cruz. He actually picks up three girls that day before getting the the, the unfortunate one that we're getting ready to talk about. But he picks up three girls that day and delivers them to their destinations like a good Uber driver. His reasoning for this later was that when he had picked them up, there had been too many people around that saw it and would have been able to talk. So... Do you know in your research did 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 Kemper know Bruce Moreland? I don't know, but I don't know who Bruce Moreland is. Oh well, then it probably didn't come up in research. I'm not. I'm kind of surprised because uh, Bruce Moreland uh, hails from Santa Cruz. He um, actually had the most high priced seventeen ninety nine one dollar. Oh Jesus Christ! Regular strike draped bust dollar ever ever. In his collection, it was it, uh, the auction record of $8,813. Yeah. $8,813. Who doesn't know Bruce in Santa Cruz is probably what I'm wondering, though. Everybody. So, obviously, he probably knew him. You were the only person that knows Bruce in Santa Cruz. Probably been dead for how long? Nobody cares. Don't even answer that. Later that afternoon, it's still raining, by the way. Hard now. Rain's pouring down. The skies are gray. Ed's car windows are fogging up which Ed was okay with seeing as it made it harder for people to see him and inside the vehicle. He's cruising the streets when he spots 19-year-old Cynthia Shaw with her thumb out on Mission Avenue, hoping to find a ride to Cabrillo College in Aptos, where she was attending school. Now, poor young Cynthia Shaw here had dreams of either being a teacher or a police officer. She was a good student, smart student, pretty girl, but not for much longer because Ed spots the blonde standing there uh, on Mission Avenue with her thumb out. She was dressed in a green, blue, and yellow nylon jacket a white blouse, checkered wool skirt, blue socks, and green hiking boots. And when he sees her, he swings that big yellow Ford Galaxy onto the shoulder of the road. Cynthia swings open the passenger door, and Ed starts pulling the watch trick like he had done so many times before. And it works like a charm with Cynthia. You know, it's funny. As you were just extra explaining, describing, describing Cynthia, I just thought, we're in a unique uh, profession here. Can you imagine any other scenario where, let me just say it this way. If you saw a girl and I was like, hey, what'd you do today? And you're like, oh, I was at Applebee's. I was like, oh, cool. And you're like, yeah, I met this one girl. She was she was blonde. She was beautiful. She had a green, blue, and yellow nylon jacket on, white blouse, checkered wool skirt, blue socks, and green hiking boots. I'd be like, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But somehow, because we get away with describing down to the fiber what these people are wearing. And, and I'm going to do that with every victim that Ed murders. Yeah. Oh, it's funny and tragic. But anyway, I, I digress. Maybe I did get a little specific with the research here. It does probably get a little monotonous after a while. No, the details I love it. I love every detail. 
every detail. It it sparks it sparks a picture in my mind of exactly who these people are. Also, always sparks pictures of how these people probably came in contact with various coins that I'm aware of. Also, well, the reason I do that, I I, I, des- I describe um, places and and everything is because I like to put a picture in my just like you said. And the more you fill in these blanks, the more. And I've learned a lot doing this research about misconceptions that I had with the case because I was picturing it all wrong when I go to these areas on Google Maps and I'm like, oh, that's not what I was picturing at all. Because for the longest time, when I pictured uh, Ed pulling into places to kill these girls, in my head, it was always like a canyony kind of desert area, right? But that wasn't the case at all. It, It was always a wooded area with a lot of foliage and stuff. And that's never what I had in my mind's eye, what I pictured. Yeah. And so you paint a picture based on the the, the details, and then it it uh, makes it more real. And it also gives you some empathy for the people. Yeah, it humanizes them. Yes, like because of the way you described Ekoku, like it 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 affected me more than like if I had just heard the story and but didn't know the details of like what she looked like and you know her being a ballet dancer for you know North Korea. I mean, all those things added up. Yeah, Eko had a uh, a big bright future ahead of her. She did. Now, almost the instant that Cynthia gets in the car, Ed Ed isn't fucking around anymore. He pulls away and turns towards Watsonville, a direction that Cynthia wasn't supposed to be going, and yanks the twenty-two Ruger on her while he's driving, takes her to the backwoods farm country in Watsonville, and it's there that he pulls off on a small, isolated, unnamed back road between Coralitas Road and Freedom Boulevard. Now, I did try to find the road in particular that I think maybe he pulled off on, and I, and I did. I think find it, but I'm not going to say it because I could be wrong. But this area is all pastures and fields and wooded areas and farmland. Looks a lot like Kentucky, to be honest with you. Um, it's just mm. it's just farmland. It's a rural farm farm farming area. So he pulls off on this back road between Coralitos Road and Freedom Boulevard in Watsonville. Inside the car, he gives Cynthia Shaw the same story that he'd given Akoku. You know, he wanted to kill himself and he just wanted her to watch. Tells her she's going to be fine. And he doesn't want to hurt her. And do you remember that? Do you remember that part of the story up? Yes. And that I'm a little, I'm a little surprised that he's using it again. I mean, I guess it worked, but it, it doesn't worked. seem like. It worked like a charm yeah. on Ekoku, but Ekoku was also 15 year old, 15 years old and very naive like all 15 year olds, 15 year olds are. Yeah. I was, you know, I was like in my head when he's using that trick, I was like, I don't think that'd work on me. The watch trick would. Yeah. But that he's pulling out this one from his bag of tricks, you'd think, uh, I don't know, it's it's not as good as the watch trick. So like I said, you know, he's got this twenty two on Cynthia Shaw. He pulls off on this back road, says, hey, I don't want to hurt you. What I want to do is kill myself. I just don't want to be alone when I kill myself. He does tell Cynthia, though, this is this is not something he did with Aiko. He says, I do, before I kill myself, though, I want to say goodbye to my mother. And I don't want her to see you, so I need you to get into the trunk so that my mother won't see you. And uh, Ed says that this story kind of puts her at ease a little bit. Obviously, she's a little stressed out, right? Like you would be. Yeah. When somebody has a 22 Nazi Ruger in your face. Yeah. Yeah. The gun part, the part that's throwing it off. Like, I I, I wouldn't, eh, I already don't like, I already don't like the, the I'm going to kill myself shtick. And then the gun part seems like, eh. Well, I mean, she agrees. Not that she has an option. We're sitting here right. like she has an option. Like, I don't think I'm going to, I'll walk from here. 
That wasn't an option. She really only had one option. If you got in a car and, and let's just say, if you got in a car and they didn't have a gun on you and the person said, hey, I'm giving you a ride, but to be honest, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going to hurt you, but I, I just, I want to be with somebody when I kill myself. Think of that's a weird, that's a weird situation. What do you do? Like, what do you think you do if you're in that car? Are you like, I'll probably mm-hmm. hang out. Cause this is a good story. Yeah. Like as a man, I, I it's totally different because I'm a dude and you're a dude and we think like dudes. But... I mean, I would try to talk him out of it, right? I would be like, oh, no, don't do that. Yeah. You have so much to live for, even though I don't know the guy. He might not have anything to live for. You know, yeah. You know, so all the stuff that you say. I would be that. I would be that. I'd be like, yeah, I'd be trying to, I'd be like, okay, I'm in this because I maybe I'll talk him out of it. If I don't, then, you know, I got a story. And then if he was like, you know, I've got. AIDS and syphilis and hepatitis and all the hepatitises, A, B, C, all the way to Z. And uh, and I'm a yeah. quadriplegic and everybody I know is dead. I'd be like, you're right. You should kill yourself. Yeah, if that guy was talking to me and he was like, AIDS and beads and seeds and I've got all the diseases. And then he was like, I'm also a quadriplegic. I'd be like, maybe I should drive. When my dick fell off. I'd be like, yeah, dude, I'll watch. I'm not even going to try to talk you out of it. Do you want to hand me the keys? Because I don't even know how you're driving right now. How does this work? Do you do it with your yeah, breath that's or a good what? Point. You know, yeah, good point. Right. It sounds like you said everybody you knew is dead. Can I get in on that wheel? Yeah, exactly. Good point. And I can. I have this car. I hate to say it, but that would be my first thought is I'm in a car with somebody. And they're like, I'm going to kill myself. I just want to be with somebody. I'd be like, um, so, uh, so what are you doing with your car when you're done? Like, yeah, because this is a 69 Ford Galaxy. So I keep wanting to say his old 1969 Ford Galaxy, right? I keep having to stop from using that word. This is 1972. Yeah. So or 1972, 1973. This is a three-year-old car. This is a brand new car. Yeah, right. Uh, Good point. It, it's only old from our perspective. Yeah. So this is like somebody today, and I know we think this car is creepy, and this is another thing I think that's worth pointing out. Looking back now, we look at that car and we go, oh, yeah, that's a murderous car because it's a 1969, 68, 69 car. This is equivalent today to somebody uh, prowling the streets in a in a 2000, the year is 2021 right now, in a 2018 Chevrolet car. Yeah, exactly. Right? So that's a brand new yeah. car. Right. And a good looking car at that. And so a good it looking been, car. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been like a Chevy Volt. So like I said, Ed tells her he wants to put her in the trunk because he wants to go say bye to his mom and he doesn't want his mom to see her. She agrees because she doesn't have an option. There isn't an option B. When Ed pops the trunk, Cynthia sees that he had laid some blankets down in the back of the trunk for her so it was comfortable. That puts her at ease a little bit probably. But unfortunately, the second that she lays her, she climbs in, lays her head down. The second her head touches those blankets, Ed very quickly kind of fast draws like John Wayne. And uh, puts the pulls the Ruger out and shoots her in the forehead, right in the forehead, and she dies instantly. Man, um, no messing around. Out. It was lots out instantly. Just she never knew what hit her. He then slams the trunk shut, hmm. hops back into the galaxy, and heads home, uh, which obviously is now his mother's duplex in Aptos because he's living with Mama now. He goes home. Cynthia was a larger girl, well, at least bigger than the other girl. She was five foot five, one hundred sixty pounds. Uh, that's a small man, but that's a, you know, pretty good sized woman. Not good. Just a, that's a moderately yeah. sized woman, right? Five, five, 160 pounds. But this is the biggest girl that Ed's killed to date, aside, aside from grandma. Yeah. She'd give you a fight. I mean, that, yeah. you know, that's if she not... had known what was coming. Yeah. 
Yes. See, to me, that's so interesting because we talk about so many killers and they seem to take, they, they relish the opportunity to kill somebody, but Ed gets it out of the way. Yeah. Well, we talked about this, I believe in part one, Ed's a product killer, not a process killer. Yeah. He doesn't right. care. He doesn't yes, get anything right. out of the kill itself. It's He wants the body. It's all about getting the body. The killing is just the, the means to the end. Right. That's a good point. Um, I mean, Ed, Ed will later say in many interviews and on the witness stand that he got nothing out of the murders themselves. But there is one instance later that I'll get into that kind of points to, that maybe there's that's not fully the case. So Ed goes home. Like I said, she's a large girl, five foot, five hundred sixty pounds. Ed does have trouble getting her corpse. That's dead weight. That's one hundred sixty pounds dead weight. He has trouble getting that up the steps to Mama's home. And just as Ed is stuffing her into his closet, his mother comes home and almost catches him. And that's probably uh, the only thing more embarrassing when getting caught by your mom than than jerking off. You ever get caught jerking off by your mom up? Um, January ninth, nineteen seventy three. The next day. He pulls the corpse out of the closet while his mother is at work, has sex with it, and then dissects it in the bathtub with an axe, of course, a sword, because he's a nerd, and a power saw. Power saw is the new addition to his arsenal. Yeah, that's a tool. He took all of Cynthia's clothes to the laundromat in Oakland. So he he strips her, strips her naked before dissecting her, gathers up all her clothes, and takes her clothes to a laundromat in Oakland, California, puts them in a dryer there, cranks the temperature setting as high as it will go, throws in a few quarters, turns it on, and leaves it for somebody else to worry about. Now, he does go back the next day to check and see if they were still there, only to discover that they were gone. Somebody had apparently scored a free outfit, completely unaware of the fact that it was uh, the last clothes that a murdered young woman was wearing. Now, although he kept Cynthia's head, he did bag up the remaining pieces of her corpse and threw it off of a cliff just off of State Route 1, some some of the pieces make it into the ocean, some do not. And over the next several days, he has sex with the head, like, a lot. He, Ugh, he hangs the head a lot. So that's fun? Is that fun? That's not yes. fun. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to him. After it begins to decompose to a point where he thinks it's not uh, attractive anymore, I guess. Is that the word? He buries the head 16 inches deep right outside of his window by a stepping stone in the courtyard, just four feet from the home, facing up and looking up at the duplex. Now, later he'll say that he did this for two reasons. He actually doesn't say that he did it for two reasons. It depends on what interview that you're listening to and who he's talking to and what kind of effect that he's wanting to have. Uh, The first reason he uses is that he had a kind of relationship with Cynthia's head, and he says that he would stand at his window like a damsel and talk down to it at the ground. I love you. I miss you. How was your day, even though her day was the same every day thereafter, just hanging around in the ground 16 inches deep, looking at worms? Oh, okay, I see. Because the visual I had there for a second was like, he dropped it out of the window and would like talk to it like Romeo and Juliet, kind of, head down there. No, so he buried it four foot out from the wall, 16 inches deep, looking up at the duplex. And he said the second reason he used for doing this was that his mother always wanted somebody to look up to her. Oh, Ed. Always working a bit. Always. January 10th, 1973, two days after Cynthia's murder, her dismembered arms and legs are found on the cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean on State Route 1 by a highway patrol officer. 
January 17th, 1973, a week after the murder, the torso was found in a lagoon in Santa Cruz. January 19th, 1973, 10 days after the murder, Cynthia's left hand is found on the beach by a surfer in Monterey Bay. January 22nd, 1973, 13 days after the murder, Cynthia's pelvis is found on a shore near Santa Cruz. Uh, we've almost got like a fucked up game of treasure hunt going on here with like human pieces. Yeah, you said like some of it made it in the ocean. Sounds like none of it made it in. <laughs> yeah, but basically everything made it into the ocean because the only thing that was found on the cliff where he threw it all off of the, off the road by State Route 1 was her arms and legs. Okay. The torso and everything else made it into the ocean. Mm, okay. All, all that is, all that is, the only thing that wasn't found was the right hand and the head. Now, we know where the head is. We're aware of it right now. Currently, as we're talking, head's penis is in its mouth. Uh, but it, the right hand is missing to this day. We don't know where yeah. that is. So keep your eyes out if you live in Santa Cruz. Yep. Realistically, it's probably on the bottom of the ocean out there somewhere, and it's nothing but bones under uh, five, six inches of sand now. Yeah, five, five, six. Inches of sand. <laughs> Get the joke. Yeah, I did. Anyways, the remains are pieced together like a macabre puzzle. Fingerprints were taken from the left hand, and those matched Cynthia Shaw as well as lung x-rays. So she had some kind of health condition. I believe it was the year prior to her murder uh, that required them to take x-rays of her lungs. They used the lung x-rays from the torso uh, to make sure that it was Cynthia Shaw. And they also found a healed fracture in one of her arms uh, from a break that she had had as a child and uh, matched that up. So all the pieces that they had found belonged to Cynthia Shaw. Jeez. Now, the murder of Cynthia had finally sent the Santa Cruz PD into the into the uproar that it probably should have been in already because of the first three murders and the three decapitations and the three dissections. You'd think they would already be a little bummed yeah, I think when you involve universities, I think universities can shut that stuff down. They're like, no, we don't want to have anybody worried on campus. So so don't tell them about the, the triple homicide? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the safety measures that the university puts into effect is a bus system that it uses to help students get on and off campus so that they don't have to hitch rides as often. And they also issue stickers to campus staff. And it had a big A on the front of it. They would put it on their windshield. And it was to let uh, students know that if a staff member was going to offer them a ride, they could see that the sticker was there. And they knew, yes, it was a staff member. But because Ed's mother worked there and because she occasionally needed him to pick her up from work, uh, his mother was able to get Ed one of these stickers to put on his windshield. And that allowed him access to campus and made it pretty easy for him to move about without any suspicion whatsoever. I wonder if when his mother got him that sticker and she was like, look what I got you. He went and saw it and he was like, hey, you really came through, mom, and you don't even know it. You don't hey. even know why. Yeah. <laughs> so they just gave like, this is equivalent to like the sheriff in Jaws um, giving legs to the shark. Right? <laughs> <laughs> legs and lungs to the shark. Uh. <laughs> oh, just come yeah. on into town here. <laughs> Sharky, I think that was his name. Yeah, Sharky. I haven't watched the movie in a long time. It was Sharky. Bulletins were also placed all over campus warning students to stay in pairs. So, you know, they're 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 kind of encouraging kids, hey, there's a murderer doing murderings uh going around and he's targeting young ladies that like Simon and Garfunkel. 
So, yeah. So if that's you. Ed continues picking up and delivering the girls that ignored the warnings. Uh, he would later say that they would oftentimes bring up the topic of the co-ed killer while they were in the car with him. And uh, he says that if they did this, he claimed that was a guarantee that they were going to go, they were going to survive the trip. And I, and I'm, I think that's kind of fascinating. I wonder why. Why do you think that is that they brought it, brought him up? He would never kill them. I wonder if it was like a power thing, you know, also a bit of a ego stroke, like, haha, these guys know who I am. I'm going to let you live. That's, I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Ed liked to be liked, right? He liked to be, he liked to be liked. He did. You know? And, he just didn't know how. Right. Oh, and so when he got, when he got un, un, uh, unsolicited appreciation or recognition, I think, I think he responded in kind and wouldn't cut your head off and have sex with it. Now, keep in mind, while all this is going on, he's still occasionally going and seeing Big Rhonda. Big Rhonda. Right. They're still dating. Still dating 17-year-old Big Rhonda, who, who was in high school. Anyways, 8.30 p.m., February 5th, 1973, Ed gets into a huge fight with his mother at the house and angrily drives off looking for new victims. So this is kind of what he does. He gets in a fight with Mama and then goes and takes out his aggression on other people. Uh, and on this, Ed would say that on this night, whenever he left the house, he, quote, I was so pissed, I would have killed anybody that got in the car. Unquote. So Ed was really worked up. We don't know what the uh, argument that they had had that day was over. I couldn't find out. I, I just, I asked around here, around the house. I asked people if they knew neighbors and stuff, people walking by, they didn't know. So um, we may never know. Well, and they, they apparently, like, I'm guessing they asked his mom, tried to ask his mom. Too, but she was kind of mute. Yep. He drives onto the UC Santa Cruz campus where his mother worked and begins to prowl in his big, almost said old galaxy, but it's a new galaxy, with mm -hmm. his staff sticker on the windshield that said A, which stood for university staff. Uh, still, He's still fuming over his fight with mama. And at 9 p.m., 22-year-old, 5-foot-6-inch psychology and linguistics student Rosalind Thorpe steps out into the rain from the science library wearing a pea jacket, black pants, and pink and purple boots. She was needing to get home. She lived in an apartment with four other young ladies, and she was just wanting to get home to her apartment on Mott Street. She walked up to the bus stop and was waiting there in the rain, worried that she had already missed the last bus uh, when Ed spotted her. So she's just hanging out there in the rain, waiting for the bus. She's concerned that she's already missed the last bus, and that's when Ed spots her. He pulls up to Rosalind there at the bus stop, and says, quote, the bus is gone. I know, because I've missed it before, too. Can I give you a lift? It's pretty late, unquote. Now, seeing the sticker on Ed's windshield as he had pulled up, she assumes that this was a safe bet and just hops on in without really worrying about anything. Uh, that's what the stickers are for. That's why they gave them to them. Mm -hmm. so he had the safety pass. Hey, I'm not going to rape you. And A stood for A-OK -okay to not rape you. Is that done in your research, too? Found that out? Yeah. Yeah. Found that out. Of my... Now, just a moment later, while passing the main campus library, so he picks up Rosalind at the science library, but while passing the main campus library, he spots another 22-year-old student in the exact same predicament that Rosalind had been in. She is standing at a bus stop outside a library, and this girl is 5-foot-2-inch, 110-pound Alice Liu, who was a very young, intelligent Asian lady with a heart of gold. And 
everybody. I found out a lot about Alice Lou. I could talk about her for like an hour. I'm just going to sum it all up. She had very high aspirations, extremely intelligent. Uh, she came from a wealthy background, but she was completely aware of her of her kind of advantages that she had in life and wanted to, to use uh, her position for the good of humanity. So she wanted to help uh, lower income. Just a very good person, despite her uh, wealthy upbringing. Rich people aren't always pieces of shit, Op. No, not always. No. So we have another young Asian lady. Uh, we know that the first one, Aiko Ku, really put up a fight, almost ripped Ted's, almost ripped Ed's balls off, and uh, this one's gonna be a, she's gonna be a tough one too. One thing you learn doing this story is Ed should have stayed away from the Asians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to look at it. <laughs> now Alice was standing there at the bus stop with her thumb up when Ed once again pulls the galaxy up and screeches it to a stop. Uh, she also sees the sticker on the window, and on top of that, to further like calm her nerves, she sees another girl in the car with him, which, you know, as a young lady, I would see that as like a green a green light, right? There's a guy in a car with another young lady. Hey, this is safe. This is perfectly safe. He's also got the sticker on the windshield. So because of these two things, Alice asks no questions and just hops right on into the back seat. Now Ed has two girls with him. He's killing it. <laughs> but um. <laughs> He's oh wow! Ah, uh, while on the unit, while they're still on the university grounds and driving, Ed pulls that twenty-two Ruger out from under his left thigh and very quickly puts a bullet in Rosalind Thorpe's forehead before she even has a second to realize what is happening. So they're Jeez. just driving. This is they're still on the university grounds. It's raining outside. The windows are fogged up. And uh, this is probably why he can get away with it because nobody's outside, right? Yeah. But, but they're still on, in the middle of the university. He shoots Rosalind Thorpe in the forehead in the car while they're driving. Alice Lou, who is in the back seat, starts fucking freaking out, which is completely understandable. She starts darting around frantically, like a like Darting. a running back. Yeah. Right? She's juking and everything, and Ed's, like, moving the pistol around, trying to aim in on her. He does miss one shot at point-blank range, misses it, shoots into the seat, and uh, she starts putting up a fight. Like I said, these feisty Asians, they're hard to kill. And if World War II taught us anything... And and Vietnam. In Vietnam, yeah. Hard to kill. They're tough and quick. Sure. Especially if they're in a plane. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, they'll kill themselves in a plane. You know, the they'll kill themselves in a plane. Yeah. Like they got a uh, lot of fight in them. That's what I'm they saying. Do. Asians they'll, do. they'll fight you uh, with the plane. They'll they drop will that fight plane you on with your the plane. Yes. So yeah. Alice Lou is darting around in the back seat trying to avoid these bullets, but Ed, he met like I said, he misses the first the first shot at point blank range. Uh the next time he shoots though, she's raising her hands up to block her face, and the round goes through both of her hands and hits her square in the face. Uh leaving her bleeding in the back seat. Thinking she's dead, he starts. He, he heads to get off campus. But uh, as he pulls up to the gate, Alice Lou comes back to again. A lot of fight. A lot of a lot fight of in this fight. girl. She's got a round in her face, buried in her face now, and she's moaning. So she's like, uh, uh, she doesn't really know what's going on. She's like semi-conscious. At the gate, the guard checks it out, and Ed tells him that he's got two drunk girls that he just needs to get home. And because 
Alice Lou is just kind of moaning in the back seat. That kind of checks out. And when he mm-hmm. sees the A sticker on the front of his windshield, the guard just waves him on through. Okay, yeah. Get these ladies home, you dog. You know, I was just thinking about what you said that, you know, avoid the Asians. That, the, the, uh, that's a broad statement because they're, they're, they're fighters. And all, but there, there are a lot of countries in Asia. Like, you know, Iran's in Asia. <laughs> well, India. I mean, the ones that, that look Asian. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, so there's apparently a very specific look to like a Chinese person versus somebody from like Kyrgyzstan. Listen, listen, I, I'm aware, I'm aware that what I said sounded super racist, and <laughs> but if, if I say an Asian, you're not picturing somebody from Pakistan Cy- or Cyprus <laughs> or Cyprus. No, and I'm also aware that people in Japan look different than people in China, and the people in China look different. Than the people in Korea, I can. I feel like I'm pretty good at spotting Asians. Like I can, I can see one and tell you what flavor they are. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll tell you another thing. I can, I can identify Asians too and be like, hey, that person looks like they're from Israel, which is also in Asia. So I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Aren't most uh, of the people in Israel white? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it gets more mixed as you get into like Jordan, Azerbaijan, and what. But you know, I feel like I've turned this into a. <laughs> you know what kind of Asian I was talking about, Op? You know, Dale. Her last name was Lou. You know damn well what kind of Asian I was. I wasn't talking about somebody from Pakistan. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Bye. All right, fine. So he gets through the gate with these two dead, now dead girls. Well, one of them is very dead. The other one is on her way. She's almost there. Uh, he gets on a back road right outside of the UC Santa Cruz gate, and that's where Ed puts another round into the head of the moaning, dying Alice Lou and ends her life. He then gets out, takes both of their bodies out of the car, and stuffs them into the large, large trunk. And as we discussed in, in, the, in the previous part, a uh, very large trunk in this Ford Galaxy. Plenty of sp- place to, plenty of space to bleed out. Yes, all the room you could wish for to bleed out in. Yeah, really. After climbing back into his galaxy, Ed looks down and realizes his gas tank is on empty. He then finds a gas station, goes inside, cleans his hands off in the bathroom, pays for his gas, fills up his tank, and heads back to Mama's house. Now, when he arrives at Clarnell's around ten thirty p.m., his mother is home, so he realizes he can't take him up whole. Instead, he gets out his knife, he nicknamed the General, and decapitates the girls in the trunk of the driveway right there in front of God and everybody. Jeez. Now, it is nighttime, though, but if you look at pictures of of this area where Clarnell lived, it's a neighborhood. I mean, there's probably people out walking there. It's only 1030 at nighttime. There's probably still people out walking around. I imagine it's a very kind of crammed neighborhood, and Clarnell lived in a corner. On the, uh, in a corner house. So this is still a risky move, one would argue. Decapitating two young ladies in your driveway in a crammed neighborhood. Very risky. But, you know, I, I think we'll find that this becomes kind of his M.O., the amount of risk he's willing to, you know, take. It's crazy. Yeah. He then sneaks the heads up to his room at Mommy's house in a camera bag that Alice Lou had been carrying, like a he sneaks these up like a 12-year-old trying to sneak in a Playboy. 
Did you ever find a Playboy and try to sneak it into your room? I, there were a lot of kids that were very playful uh, in my area. Some were really. No, not like a boy that enjoys playing a Playboy. It had, you know, it had a lot of like bushes in it and nipples and butts and, 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 and naked, naked people oh. and women and, and, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. breasts and, and yeah. stuff like that. I usually just stuck to the toy section of the catalog, but. There wasn't a toy section in Playboy. Yeah, there oh, was. Oh, you mean like sex toys? You were looking at sex toys up? No, no, like just, you know, like be like, mama be like, all right, go through Sears catalog, find the, you pick your toys for Christmas. And she'd be like, don't look at the underwear section. And I'd be like, okay, fine, I won't. That's you never time, snuck like, a Playboy into your room as a child. No. I did one time. I remember I felt, it was like, I felt like I had, like a kilo of Peruvian cocaine. So that's how serious I thought the situation was. I tucked it into the back of my jeans. And uh, I didn't roll it up either. I slid it in because I, I was a smart kid. I know you roll it up. It, it looks like you've got a tail sticking out of, of the back of your pants. So I rolled it out. So like Kevlar, like armor. And stuck it onto my, onto my butt and then pulled my shirt over. That's how I got my Playboy into my room. And mom listens to the show. And now you know that, Mom. <laughs> uh, but anyways, that's kind of what Ed's doing here with these two heads. He uses Alice Lou's camera bag. And that's how he sneaks these heads into the house. And on his way up the steps to the duplex, he passes a couple that lived in the neighboring duplex. And uh, on this, Ed would later say. Some people go crazy at that point. I felt it. It was one hell of a tweak. I mean, to just flip out and not know where I was to be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it. Walking up to my apartment past a happy young couple coming down the stairs who nodded and smiled at me as they went by. Good evening. And they're going out on a date where I'd love to be going. And I'm aware of both of these realities and the, dis the distance between those two is so dramatic, so amazing, so violent that really, I can feel the wheels squeaking inside. That was really pulling on it. And I imagine at that point, some people break. But I didn't literally go insane. I didn't get lost. So, yeah, Ed feels very sorry for himself. No, nobody yeah. feels more sorry for Ed Kemper than Ed Kemper does. Ed's an idiot. He makes uh, one more trip downstairs that night to cut the hands off of the bodies while they're still in the trunk of the car. And this is a thing that he does time and time again. Is, is he kind of removes any identifying features from a corpse that he can. Uh, another thing that he did with all the heads that I just didn't mention that I should have was uh, he was also a big fan of knocking their teeth out. He would also dig out any bullet fragments that were in the heads to kind of, rem you know, erase any traces that they could link back to him. Ballistics and all that, yeah. Now, the next afternoon after Clarnell goes to work, Ed goes out to the trunk with a blanket and brings Alice Lou's body up to his room after he wraps it up in the blanket. And it blows my mind when I think about this, that nobody ever saw anything or nobody, ha somebody sh had to have seen, but nobody ever did any, like, I know he's got this corpse wrapped up in a blanket. It's, it's a small girl and she's, uh, this is a terrible joke, but she's substantially, she's at least 10 inches smaller. She's at least 10 inches shorter because she's just shoulders down. The head is missing, but <laughs> Jeez. I mean, Really? Yeah. You got to suspect something. 
She could have had a high forehead. Maybe it's more like 11 or 12. What did you just say? I don't know. Nothing. After he takes Alice Lou's body up to his room, he positions her head on the shelf so that she can look at the bed that her body is laying on. And then he gets off while he rapes the corpse that the head is watching belongs to. So he, he fixes the head on the shelf so that it's, it can see its um, body. And then Ed rapes the body on the bed while she's watching her body get raped. I don't know how else to say that. So uh, have you ever like walked into your kid's room or into any room and you're like, hey, who got the gum on the carpet? You know, that kind of a thing where like as a parent, you're very aware of the the mi- the minor messes that your children have made here and there in the house. Yeah, this is a very who got the gum on the carpet. Yeah, but like, uh, like, hey, who got the big circular blood stain on the shelf? Like, wherever he places these heads, there has to be some residual. Uh, well, one thing that I that I did it, learn in all this is Ed is a master cleaner. He is very meticulous with cleaning up after himself. Ah, uh, so he. So I mean, that was never really a problem. In fact, he's dissecting these bodies in his mother's bathroom. She never suspected a thing. My goodness, that's crazy. So after he gets finished raping this body while the head watches, uh, he, he places the heads and hands in garbage bags, then packs them along with Alice Lou's headless and handless body back to his trunk. Ed then drives 50 miles north and discards all the pieces in multiple locations in the ocean and surrounding hills in an area known as Devil's Slide. And then he returns home. On February 14th, 1973, Kemper takes the two-hour drive to Turlock County to stay the night with his girlfriend, Big Rhonda. Uh, at dinner, though, he, he, he had joined them for dinner, her and her family. It's also weird to me that her mother and father allowed this. Uh, 20, he's 23 Yeah, because she's 17, time. right? She's 17. He's 23 at she's, this time, yeah. Yeah, 23-year-old to come and spend the night with a 17-year-old. Yeah, but at dinner, he has shit for table manners. And also, after everybody kind of retreats to bed, Kemper stays up with his girlfriend's brother and talks loudly, completely uncaring of the fact that everybody in the house is trying to sleep. So uh, her dad ends up kicking him out, and he has to sleep in his car that night. So if the burping and farting and everything at the table wasn't enough, or whatever he did, they just said that he had horrible table manners. He did make a good impression on the parents. Yeah, it's weird. It seems, I don't know, it seems un... un uh... Unlike a guy who was trying to be so liked, you know? Yeah, just no uh, no social skills yeah. whatsoever. Yep. So like I said, the dad ends up kicking him out. He has to sleep in the car that night. He does, however, take Big Rhonda to school the next morning, and then he heads back home to Santa Cruz. On February 15th, 1973, Rosalind and Alice's headless and handless corpses are found by an Alameda County road crew. March 1st, 1973, a little over two weeks after the bodies were found, Rosalind and Alice's heads are found by a lone hiker. And uh, that would be the last we hear of Rosalind and Alice. It is now mid-March, 1973. Ed once again travels to Turlock, California, and surprises his girlfriend, Big Rhonda, at her house in in the San Joaquin Valley farming area. Is that near the San Joaquin Valley, I wonder? 
Yeah, the San ha- the San Joaquin Joaquin Phoenix yeah. Valley. That's what I always think when I see that word. That's the mm. San Joaquin Valley farming area. She lived in a rural, rural, rural area in the San Joaquin Valley. Okay. Yeah. Ed proposes to her op, and guess what? She said yes. She said yes. Weird. Yeah, Big Rhonda is now engaged to Big Ed. Ed has a fiancé and will continue to have a fiancé up until the day he is caught. Hmm. Like I said, Ed Kemper is now engaged, and he gets engaged just weeks after committing a double homicide. Later on the witness stand, Ed will say of Big Rhonda, quote, I never once thought of killing her, unquote. Uh, Ed doesn't talk about her that much, but it is very clear that she cared a great deal for him. And he also seems if he was capable of love, I don't know if he was capable of it, but if he was, this is the closest that he ever got to loving anybody Hmm. was big Rhonda. They're big (laughs) meaty calves. (laughs) I like to imagine that she definitely wore flats all the time because she didn't share her feet were too big to buy high heels like Peggy. Peggy Hill. I know why he probably never decided to kill her because he was probably like, well, can't risk having that head drop off the shelf onto the ground. Be too loud. <laughs> It'd be like dropping a backpack full of college books. <laughs> yeah. Big Rhonda's big fucking noggin. <laughs> bouncing off the wood floors, fall through and land on somebody's kitchen table. Is there a, is there, there must be a, a, there must be a threshold to when like enough time has passed where you can say something about a victim and not feel as bad. I, that sounds terrible. Big Rhonda isn't a victim. Isn't a victim. She's still alive to this day. Oh no. Ever last interview in 2020. <laughs> oh, crap. Or 2019. I'm sorry. She's going to hear this. She very well. Actually, she won't because Big Rhonda is now an old lady uh, in her late 60s. And doesn't do interviews at all. Actually, in her last interview, she answered uh, what very few questions that she would answer with very short answers. And then at the end said, please never contact me again. Anybody. I've put this behind me, all of this behind me. And um, I hadn't thought about it in years. And I would prefer to not thinking about it again ever. Okay. So we'll say <laughs> we we'll say more about Big Ronda now. <laughs> so uh... Big Ronda. Very upset that her boyfriend killed all these women. She was like, oh, it is over. Mm. Terrible. You are not who I who you are not who I thought you were, Ed. All those heads. Yeah. The murders of Rosalind and Alice sends the UC Santa Cruz and surrounding colleges into a further panic than they already were. Flyers are posted everywhere that say things like, quote, everybody needs a body. Save yours. Unquote. Which is Wow. I thought that was kind of <laughs> weird. Sounds Straight like something. To the point I- and true. <laughs> I guess. Uh, the campus uh. police also begin carpet bombing the university with anti-hitchhiking pamphlets. Everybody's really in a, they've really got their panties in a bunch. Mm, yep. Ed is still hanging out at the jury room on a regular basis and yuck yucking it up with his cop buddies who often disclose details of the murders that Ed had committed to him. Ed, Ed loves this. He never brings it up, though. He knows it'll make him look suspicious. At one point during one of these conversations, Ed looks one of his cop buddies there in the eye and says, boy, this guy must be a real sicko. And I like that. That's that's funny. It's ballsy. And ballsy. Yeah. 
Now, it's around this time that Ad also finds another hangout spot that he loves loves to spend time at on days when he's not feeling like sharing beers with the cops at the jury room. And it was a gun shop in Santa Cruz owned by owned by a man by the name of Harry Ellis. So Ed's hanging out at this at this gun store. He kind of yuck yucks it up with Harry Ellis all the time, leans on the counters, you know, with his elbows. You know that guy that's always hanging around. The and and truth be told, the owner probably doesn't even like him being around. He's more irritated by his presence than anything. Yeah. You know this kind of guy? Yeah, the guy that's standing at the counter like, uh, you mind if I can I pull the trigger? I'll pull the you know, and then he's looking down the sights of a pistol like somehow they're gonna be off. <laughs> yeah. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> so he hangs out here for hours on end, probably pestering Harry Ellis to death. But Ed does think it's funny and chuckles to himself when Harry Ellis talks about how the, all the recent murders was really cranking up business because everybody was buying guns now in a panic. So Ed got Ed, Ed got a chuckle out of that. Ed was helping mm. his what if what if we found that the, Ed did all of this to help his friend's business out? That was he was just that good of a friend. <laughs> a couple businesses just totally blow up, like the gun store. You know, he's creative and tries to get you know some attention to a local bakery. Uh, you know, he's doing what he can. This is just in a big elaborate marketing scheme. Yeah, it's that's, just a more all. murder. Yeah, it's a more murderous. Uh, uh, a more murderous version of Better Business Bureau. <laughs> now, at one point, while Ed is in this gun store owned by Harry Ellis, leaned on the counter, talking Harry's fucking ear off, probably, uh, a nervous young lady walks in and tells Harry that she wants to purchase a pistol to protect herself. She said that she was scared because of the murders that were going on. And then Ed watched her pick out a snub nose thirty eight and pay for it. And as she's stuffing it into her purse, she says, quote, I've never owned a gun before, but I'm frightened. From now on, I'm keeping this handy at all times. And uh, Harry would later say that when Ed heard this, he chuckled to himself as he leaned on the counter there with his elbows. Oh, wow. I wonder if she made it on the list of people he wasn't going to kill because of... Probably. You know. Yeah, because she brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Harry Ellis in, in later interviews also said that after the young lady left... He looked at Ed Kipper and said, man, the guy who's doing this to these girls must be sick. He needs help. And according to Harry Ellis nodded, according to Harry Ellis, Ed nodded and said, sure does. Just the, uh, just the idea that he's watching the fall on this level, the fallout from his crimes and he's standing right there. Yeah. That's some that's, that's crazy. A view we don't get very often, you know? We we hear a lot about the killers, you know, as they watch their actions on TV and whatnot. But to be like so embedded, it's interesting. It's at this point, Ed starts picking up girls just to see if he can resist killing them. He picks up two girls that look just like his first two victims. They wanted Ed to take them the wrong way to their destination. Ed knew the area really well. And uh, the, the way that they were wanting Ed to take them would have taken them right past the site of his first two murders. And Ed knew that if they drove by that site, he wouldn't be able to resist murdering them. Hmm. So whenever they say, hey, you need to go that way, Ed's like, you don't you don't want to go down that road. <laughs> A lot of bad things <laughs> happen down that road. <laughs> you know, Judd from Pittsburgh, you don't want to go down that road. Huh? <laughs> but he's like saying, like, he can't sit, come out and say, hey, listen, if I take you that way, I'm going to kill you both. He's like, I yeah, he, don't think you want to do that. 
You're not going to want to go that way. Yeah. Ed knew if they went that way, he wouldn't be able to resist killing them. He he does scare them by going the way that he insisted they go, and they end up getting dropped off safely at their at their uh, at their uh, I almost said barracks. What's the college equivalent to uh, 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 dorm rooms? Dorms, yeah, dorms. He said they scampered out of the car and ran into the dorm. Was absolutely terrified, even though he kind of saved their life. Yeah, by re- refusing to go the way that they wanted to. <laughs> He saved them from himself. Now, Ed's also turning into an alcoholic. He's drinking every single day. He would later say that during this time, he was drinking between eight and 10 bottles of wine a week and doing shots of tequila almost every day, not to mention all the booze he was drinking at the jury room with the cops. Doing a lot of boozing up. He's a big boy. He's a big boy. Yeah, that's a lot. lot. You ever seen that picture of Andre the Giant holding a can of beer? Yeah, that's crazy. It literally looks like a Photoshop. That's how big Andre the Giant's hands were. Yeah, he, it looks like those little tiny apple juice cans, you know. We're now to uh, what I'm going to call the the boss fight. Off. <laughs> the main boss level. <laughs> this is the boss level. And Sweet. Two weeks prior to April 20th, Ed had figured out in his in his big Ed Ed Kemper brain. That all he was doing was killing his mother over and over and over again when he's killing these young ladies. And he, he came to the conclusion, I'm, I'm eventually I'm going to have to kill her. I'm going to have to kill Clarnell. That's why I'm doing all this anyway. And, and that's whenever, you know, this is the boss. If we're in a video game, the screen just lit up and, and things start falling from the sky. And, you know, like, oh, shit's getting ready to hit the fan. I hope that I gathered enough power-ups and extra ammunition. And I hope that I, and I'm glad that I didn't use all my bazooka ammo because this is the this is the boss fight yep it's exactly how it goes in zelda breath of the wild that i've been playing except for you don't have a bazooka you have like mushrooms who is he fucking fighting jerry garcia (laughs) (laughs) i mean i've never played zelda but who do you fight with mushrooms well you can you can cook chong you can cook various mushrooms into different elixirs to make, uh, you know, strengthening potions, stuff like that. Oh, that sounds so boring. Yeah, How I many swords so do you own? Uh, a disturbing <laughs> amount, actually, in the game. I have a disturbing <laughs> amount of swords. <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> yeah, Zelda sounds like you would own swords. Chop water bottles up in the back backyard. <laughs> It's my first Drinking game like this that elixir. I <laughs> he just mixes with Gatorade. Uh, I'm very much a first-person shooter kind of person, like Call of Duty and stuff. So this is my first experience venturing into it. But I'm kind of liking it. It's very ASMR, like very calming. Like I would think that the outdoors were for Ed as he was, you know, standing over a body that he had just killed. Uh, yeah, I guess. I, I think that the ASMR for Ed, though, is the sound of a penis going in and out of a throat hole though gross imagine getting caught like clarnell walks in and he stands up like oh he's got his hands up and the head is still mounted on his erection oh gosh oh egg on my face i mean okay but for a that is a terrible picture but just stare at that picture for a minute like 
you you would you would have you could not connect the dots on what you were seeing. No, you'd have an aneurysm, I would at. imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one thing to walk in on someone who's committing, you know, some personal sexual indiscretion or something. But you couldn't, you could not, you, you just would not see that scene and it instantly added up that, oh my goodness, my, my son has a severed head in his hands. No, you just, no. No, not in his hands. His hands are up. It's stuck onto his, <laughs> yeah, it's hanging yeah, okay. from his erection. Yeah, even then, I mean, you're just like, you just don't, you can't put that one together. Nope. And then out the bottom of the throat, you just see a little mushroom head. You're like, fuck. Head. <laughs> Gross, jeez. And look at you, full circle with the mushrooms. Good job. That was that yeah, was comedic, my, uh, com- and it comedic. wasn't an elixir. It was well. He was kind of elixir. She kind of was elixiring him on Good Friday, April twentieth, nineteen seventy three, Easter weekend. Up Easter weekend, April twentieth, nineteen seventy three. Two months after his last murders, Ed stops at the side of the road on an outing to grab himself a pack of cigarettes. And uh, as a nice gesture, he picks a lily flower to give to his mother for Easter. This is kind of nice, kind of sweet. Yeah. Side of Ed right. we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he saw, Big Rhonda saw something in Ed Kemper. So there are, there's, there are sweet tendencies there somewhere, right? Yeah, even a clock's right twice a day. Yeah, I figured exactly. that was an appropriate saying for this thing. Ed then goes home with the lily and waits for his mother to get home so he can give her the flower for, for Easter. Um, Clarnell had been out drinking, though, getting, getting slits-faced. Schlitz-faced. Schlitz-faced. Ed ended up waiting all day while killing a six-pack of beer. A little, before midnight, a little before midnight, he falls asleep. He wakes up at 2 a.m. to check to see if his mother's home yet so he could give her the lily. She wasn't, so he goes back to sleep. He wakes up again at 4 a.m. 4 a.m. and goes into her room, and there he found his mother, Clarnell, sitting up in bed reading a book. Before Ed even had a chance to give her the lily or even bring it up, Clarnell snaps, quote, Oh my God, now I suppose you're going to want to stay up all night and talk at Big Ed. And like a little Ugh. child, this hurt his feelings. He said, Nope. Turns around and walks out and goes back to his room. There, Ed sat on his bed for an hour. He just sat there staring at the floor, and in that very short period of time, he came to one shocking revelation, and that is, today is the day. It's time to kill Mama. I've saved up my ammunition. I've got the bazooka ready. I've got all my mushroom elixirs and my gold sword. Let's do a boss fight. Let's beat the game. It's time to beat the game. Beat the game. And in a way, he that's what he was doing, right? I mean, I don't, uh, no one should be killed, but yeah, Clarnell should be killed. <sighs> a bold, mm. a bold statement. Thanks. On your, on your part, Oppen, I'm sure one that we're not going to pay for dearfully. No. Uh, <laughs> legacy may, history may prove different on my opinion on that, but uh, yeah, just, <laughs> she messed, she messed that up. Yeah, I she, mean, Clarnell's, I mean. She's a shit. She's a shitty person. She's a terrible person. I would argue that she doesn't deserve what she's got coming here. Uh, maybe, nah. a, maybe a stroke. Just like uh, a stroke would be all yeah, she deserved. Like she gets, she's a debilitating stroke, and then 
she gets to sit around while Ed barely takes care of her for the rest of her life. That that maybe that's a uh, that's you know just that would be karma. Karma. This is like yeah. overkill. Yeah. When I'm getting ready to say because at five a.m. So one hour after he went into her room at 5 a.m. on Saturday, April 21st, 1973, Ed slowly creaks the door open to Clarnell's room, clutching a claw hammer in one hand and a knife in the other. Clarnell is asleep in bed. He creeps up beside it and then begins caving her head in with the claw hammer until it was nothing but a red pile of mush in the back. He then rolls her, rolls her corpse over and slits her throat with the knife just to be safe. Ed would later say that he was shocked at how easy she was to kill. So in his head, he had built her up to be probably had high armor ratings. Yeah. I would imagine. Right. This is the boss fight. Thought it was going to be harder. Remember, that's how I felt um, uh, during the boss fight in Doom. I beat the game Doom and the boss fight was like, oh, wow, that, that boss was a real Clarnell. That's exactly what I say against every boss in Zelda. Like all of his victims, he then cuts his mother's head off. And not like all of his victims, he takes it to the living room, places it on the mantle, and spends the next few hours yelling and screaming at it, yelling everything that he had, all that pent-up anger and rage that he had been collecting since the day he was born towards his mother. He lets it out and spit and yelling as he screams, and basically has a fucking meltdown right in her face as it's sitting on the mantle. After he says what he felt he needed to say, he throws darts at it for a bit. That's weird. This is almost like a cat playing with a mouse at this point. Yeah. Takes turns. He he just throws darts at it for a little while. And then, as the the, uh, icing on the cake, I guess, he takes the claw hammer and caves in her face, too, like he had done the back of her head. So now the head is basically just a a shattered pile of mush. Afterwards, he removes her tongue and vocal cords and throws them in the garbage disposable. But when he turns it on, chunks of them fly up and hit in the, and hit it in the face. He would later say that quote, it seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over the years. Unquote. Jeez. Wow. After the garbage disposal debacle, Ed went back into his mother's bedroom and had sex with her headless corpse. So that's a fun fact. He raped his mother's headless corpse. On this, Ed would later say, quote, I came out of my mother's vagina, and in a rage, I went right back in. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, that is, oh. Oh, man. That's rough. At around 1 p.m., so this all started at 5 a.m. The killing, the dissect, the killing, the decapitation, uh, the dart throwing, the yelling, the the garbage disposal debacle, and then the raping. All that took about 5 p.m. It's now 1 p.m. So all that took, uh, how much time is that? Eight hours? Six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, eight hours. So all that took about eight hours. He's probably tired. 1 p.m., Ed leaves and goes out for a drive and eventually ends up back at the jury room. At the jury room, he sees an acquaintance that owes him 10 bucks. Now, Ed's still riled up. He's still still really not okay right now. He sees this acquaintance at the jury room that owes him 10 bucks, and he decides right then and there that he's going to kill him 
the first chance he gets today. It's going to happen today. He's going to kill him. But right after Ed comes to this realization, the man slides up beside Ed on a stool and hands him the 10 spot and saves his own life without, he didn't even know it. Ed slides the 10 spot across the bar and buys them both a beer. How'd you like to be that? You know, you're totally not the, uh, the, uh, the, what is that called? The, the type, the target type, the, uh, the, yeah, the top. Yeah. The type for Ed to kill. And yet you're the, you're the one guy that <laughs> the rest of your life, you gotta be like, yeah, Ed about killed me. Me and a bunch of women over $10, over 10 bucks. Oof. I bet you his bank account looks pretty solid today. On the drive home from the jury room, Ed realizes there's only one person in the world that would miss his mother, and that would be her best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Sally Hallett. Uh, For the rest of the story, I'm going to call her Sally. Uh, Her name was Sarah Hallett, but everybody called her Sally. So back at home, this is around 5 p.m. now, he calls her up and invites her over for a surprise dinner and movie with him and his mother. Ed spends the time before she gets there cleaning up the house. Uh, of the blood and everything from the the darts and the the garbage disposal and and debacle, and also places his mother's corpse in the closet. Sally Hallett gets there at around seven thirty p.m. She knocks on the door and Ed lets her in. When she enters, it's it, she is hungover from the night before. She went out with Clarnell the night before, so she's hungover. She's feeling shitty, and the first thing that she says when she walks in is. Quote, let's sit down. I'm dead. Oh, wow. (laughs) Also, okay, I just got this picture in my head. Like, this lady is best friends with Clarnell. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Sally is also a piece of crap. I'm just going to, you know, either she's an absolute angel or. Yeah, because this is the only real friend that that Clarnell had. Yeah. And I'm getting, I just don't, I'm, I don't know. I, I know she died, so I shouldn't say anything, but I kind of just feel like she's like, oh, let's sit down. I'm dead. And boy, howdy, was she right? Yeah, she was. Because before she makes it to the couch, Ed, now this is six foot nine, almost 300 pound Ed Kemper, punches her in the stomach as hard as he possibly can then spins her violently around and wraps his huge arm around the old lady's throat. So he's got her in a chokehold. He then lifts her off the ground with his arm and squeezes as hard as he can while violently shaking her like an alligator. Uh, When he does this, he feels her neck snap, and then he feels her go completely limp. Uh, Ed later would say on this, quote, I had broken her neck and her head was just wobbling around with the bones of her neck disconnected in the skin sack of her neck, unquote. Man. So it's just rolling around. The head is not connected to anything at the neck. Just probably grinding, I would imagine. Yeah. Where the two pieces of bone. Ed later told FBI profiler John Douglas that he had an intense orgasm while breaking Sally's neck. And this is why I said, that even though we know Ed is a product killer, there might have been something to the process as well. This is the only time, however, that we will find out that he had any kind of arousal with a murder. But he says that he did have an orgasm while he broke this old lady's neck. Mm. As with all of his victims, he then cuts off Sally Hallett's head, strips her naked, 
and rapes her corpse. Yada, yada, yada. What kind of human being when you got to go yada, yada? You know, all that stuff. The decapitation, the corpse raping, all of that. Afterwards, he puts her body in his bed and then leaves again for the jury room where he has a few more beers with the cops. Upon returning home late that night, he curls up in his mother's blood-soaked bed and goes to sleep. The next morning, he leaves a note for the police on his mother's mattress that says, quote, not sloppy or incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. Got things to do. Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible butcher. It was quick. Asleep. No pain. The way I wanted it. Unquote. So he's telling them that he murdered her at around 5.15 a.m. on Saturday morning. That it was quick and painful and, and the not sloppy or incomplete gents. Just a lack of time is letting the police know that he's not a he's not an amateur or anything. It's just he has things he's got to get done. He doesn't have time to clean it up, and you know he's uh he's not trying to hide anything at this point. He then fishes Sally Hallett's keys out of her purse, loads her car up with a bunch of guns and ammunition, and heads east over the Sierras with no particular destination in mind. He does stop in Reno, Nevada, where he rents a green Impala. And then ditches Sally Hallett's car at a gas station. You know, Reno, Reno is the only other town, ta- other town, other than Troy, Michigan, which was like where Eight Mile is. You know, yeah, where I, where I physically like locked my doors as I drove my car down the streets. Reno is not. It, it, it'll give you a creepy feeling. Yeah, you wouldn't raise your parts. children there? Nah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this gas station actually had a mechanic. He told the he told the mechanic there that this car that he was in, Sally Hallett's car, had an electrical wire problem underneath the dash. And he told them that because he knew how bad mechanics hate diagnosing this kind of stuff and that it would be a few days before he would even bother looking at it. Uh, so he's buying himself time. Yeah. So that's why he tells the uh, the mechanic that he's leaving the car there. So he he's, he's, he proves time and time again that he's super intelligent. Mm-hmm. So he rents this green Impala, ditches Sally Hallett's car, and then drives for three days straight while taking gas station uh, energy drinks and pills and popping bennies. And he eventually reaches Colorado. And it's when he's in Colorado, Ed Kemper decides, this has gone too far. It's over. I've killed mama. I took care of the boss. I beat the game. I need to turn myself in. And at 4 a.m. on April 24th, 1973, in Pueblo, Colorado, he stops at a payphone at East 21st Street and Norwood Avenue and calls the Santa Cruz Police Department and confesses to the killings. When they pick up, he says, quote, I killed my mother and her friend, and I killed those college girls. I killed six of them, and I can show you where I hid the pieces of their bodies. I'm the chopper, I'm the butcher, I'm the co-ed killer. And those were the names that they had used in uh, in the papers, newspapers and stuff upon the time of the killings. Could you imagine that giant coming in and saying that and you're like a lone police officer? Well, like, he called on from a payphone. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> However, this police officer wasn't worth a damn because he didn't believe the caller. He didn't believe Ed Kemper. And he just tells him to call back on first shift. 
You know that that cop still gets ribbed about that every year at like family functions. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's old Rick. I'm surprised he's even here. Figured, figured he might have thought the offer, the invitation for Christmas dinner was a joke. <laughs> Rick. Did you ever have a job where like one shift would dump off some work on the next shift? Like, yeah. isn't this the most extreme? Like, <laughs> oh, it's the fucking co-ed killer. Let the first shift deal with this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, this is at 4 a.m. First shift comes in uh, at this police department in Santa Cruz at 9 a.m. So, yeah, he's only three hours into his shift. Like, oh, no. Call back on first shift, dude. <laughs> However, Ed recognizes the voice of the cop on the other line from one of the police officers that he drinks with at the jury room. And Ed says, quote, Andy. Put Lieutenant Charles Shearer on the line, unquote. Wow. Ed knew Charles Shearer was in charge of the co-ed murder investigation. Uh, Andy, the cop, said no, and that Charles Shearer wouldn't be in until 9 a.m., and then Ed hung up. Now, we don't know what Ed did for the next five hours, uh, but he does call back at 9 a.m. on the dot and confesses of all his crimes to Lieutenant Charles Shearer. Um, Afterwards, the Pueblo Police Department is notified by the Santa Cruz Police Department that they need to apprehend a giant in a phone booth at the corner of 21st and Norwood. And then poor 30-year-old patrolman David Martinez was sent to gather him alone because he was the closest at the time. <laughs> I just got chills thinking about having to do that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they told him he was a giant. That's what they said. They said <laughs> they told him... Uh, they talked to David Martinez in one of the books I read, and he said that all he was told that it was the co-ed killer in Santa Cruz, and they the police department are well aware of him. They're well aware of him. They told him that the perpetrator was a giant. He was three hundred pounds, six foot nine, had a genius IQ, and was considered extremely dangerous. Good luck, <laughs> Martinez. Oh you're up. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, oh. this guy's got big old balls, though. Because he does exactly what he's told. Patrolman David Martinez pulls up in his cruiser. And when he pulls up, Ed's back. Ed's still in the phone booth, but his back is to him. And he's still talking to the Santa Cruz PD on the payphone. So Ed doesn't even see him when he pulls up in his cruiser. David Martinez, Patrolman David Martinez, pulls his 9mm out and slowly approaches Ed's back while he's in the phone booth. When he gets up to it, he taps on the glass. Ed spins around and the officer tells him to drop the phone. Ed does so then steps out, and when the officer tells him to put his hands up to get for a pat-down, Ed very easily just places his hands palm down on top of the phone booth. <laughs> it's like it's like King Kong climbing the building. It's just like, jeez. Uh, uh. Fortunately for Patrolman David Martinez, there were no issues. Ed was very uh, compliant. And uh, and didn't try anything crazy. He was arre- arrested without any issues. A few days later, the Santa Cruz Police Department showed up to bring Ed home. Uh, on the way back to Santa Cruz, they crash in local jails. Wherever they're, whatever town they're going through that night, they just crash in that local jail. And they ate at drive-ins along the way. And at one of these drive-ins, Ed's sitting in the back of the car, handcuffed. Two beautiful blondes walk past the vehicle that Ed is sitting in and kind of in a flirtatious way, wave at him. Ed just vomits in his own lap. 
like Stan Marsh from South Park when he talks to Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. Uh, Ed would later say uh, on this vomiting thing, uh, Ed would later say that uh, and in one outing that he had with Big Rhonda, he had went to he had went and got her at home and brought her back to Santa Cruz, and they went about museums and stuff, just kind of touristy places. Took her around Santa Cruz, and he took her to some historic museum where there was a a fictitious a fic like a, a a reenactment of a guillotine on a dummy. Mm. And uh, Big Rhonda would say that he threw up then too; it made him sick. <laughs> and I would imagine that it had something to do with the fact that. So he's compartmentalized these two things, right? Yeah. He's compartmentalized the decapitations, the murders, and these urges that he has, and then his love for Big Rhonda. And this is the first time that these two things kind Colli- of collided. Collide. Yeah. yeah. That's what I and that's me guessing. I would say that's what happened in, in that instance. Yeah, you wouldn't really know what to do. He the the amount of restraint he probably had to just act composed. On May 7th, 1973, Ed Kemper is indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder when he is 24 years old. Big Rhonda's parents tell the media that they do, they want complete anonymity. I have so much trouble with that word. Anonymity. Anonymity. Anonymi- they want her to be anonymous. <laughs> they want anonymity for their anonymity. daughter. Anonymity. 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 Yep. For their daughter. Yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it. Then they have her name changed and move away to avoid absolutely everything and all aspects of this case. This is why you don't hear about this in other podcasts and documentaries and stuff, because it's it's not very well known that Ed Gein, not Ed Gein, Ed Kemper was engaged uh, at the time that he was doing all this. Yeah, it would be funny, you know, some some gal in like Poughkeepsie, New York finally says, yeah, it's me. That was me. And they're like, little Rhonda. You don't have big feet like Peggy Hill. <laughs> and your name's Little Rhonda. Now that we see it, now that we think about it, we always thought your name was just sort of ironic because your name's Little Rhonda, not Big Rhonda, but you're big. Yeah, like when somebody gets the nickname Tiny because they're eight foot tall. I yeah. hate that. Yeah, me too. I fucking hate that. Yeah. So yeah, Big Rhonda's parents, they, they move her away, they change her name, and she kind of... She gives very, very few interviews and does her absolute best to avoid anything involving Ed Kemper for the rest of her life. Uh, up until today, she's still alive. October 23rd, 1973, Ed's trial begins. I don't like doing covering a lot of trial antics and everything on this podcast. I think it's boring. So uh, on November 8th, 1973, Ed Kemper is found guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder and receives eight concurrent life sentences. And I mean, that's kind of it on Ed Kemper. I'll, I'll go a little bit over the next. He he was at one point kept in the same cell with uh, a fellow serial killer in Santa Cruz at the time, Herbert Mullen, who was a smaller guy with a really stupid last name, Mullen. I was going to uh, say, it's weird. Uh, and he kind of trained Herbert Mullen like a rat. He sprayed Herbert Mullen with water when he was bad and had bad behavior. And he gave Herbert Mullen peanuts. When he was good. <laughs> Weird. And, <laughs> and what Ed would later say about... Herbert Mullen was pretty sloppy with his murders and everything. He was just a psychopath. 
he he hated Ed hated Herbert Mullen, but he would say later on Herbert Mullen, he would say, quote, anyone who just runs up to someone, shoots them and then runs off has no class, unquote. So because <laughs> you got to add that to have sex with them part in there to have class. He didn't have sex with their heads. He didn't do any of that stuff. It's just a waste of a good body. No oh, class. That Herbert Mullen, no class. None. And from that point, you know, from the time that that he is incarcerated, he 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 takes part in a lot of prison activities, uh, writes for the newspaper. He also reads books. He, he reads books for the deaf, not the deaf. Not the deaf. That, I don't think so. That was the, that, that's part of his sentence. He has to read books for the deaf. That's <laughs> challenging. I know. I meant he reads books for the blind. Uh, and you can find er- excerpts of him reading Flowers in the Attic online. Uh, he, he's well-spoken, good reader. And that's pretty much uh, what Ed's been up to. He, he doesn't mind prison. He has turned down uh, any, any parole and any chances of him getting out on parole. Uh, he has no desire to whatsoever. He wants to die in prison. And uh, he likely wouldn't get out even if he did show up at those hearings. It's interesting, you know, you don't hear all about a lot of killers that are so, that, that are, that the killing is so fundamental to some issue they've got in life that, that once they finally kill the boss, that they feel peace, you know? And I don't and know. It seems is- like Ed Kemper has genuinely found peace. Yeah, it really does. If nothing else, maybe not peace, but resolution, you know, or something, because he 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 just closed up shop. He was like, "Yeah, I'm done. It's all good." Left a note, even that's it, gents. <laughs> yeah, that's it, gents. Um, as far as Ed Kemper today, he's now 72 years old. Uh, he is riddled with diabetes. He's he's very overweight. He had a stroke in 2015. So he's not doing good health-wise, and I would say that uh, Mother Nature will close the book on Ed Kemper, just like what we we are getting ready to do right now. Let's you want to let's make a wager. What what uh, what month and year do you think Ed Kemper is going to die? With his diabetes, his prior stroke, he's not getting a lot of chance for exercise. He's extremely overweight. And people that large, that tall, usually don't live long anyway. I give it, I'm going to say 75 years old. So I'm going to, my death, 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 death pool, Deadpool for Ed yeah. Kemper is 2024. I'm going to say that's when he dies. Okay. It's October 2021. So you say 2024. I'm going to be very specific. I'm going to say, He's going to die in December of this year. December. Okay, I'll go with April 2024. Okay. And the winner, the winner has to buy the other's first value meal at Hardee's when we meet. Deal. 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 Yes. And that is it, Op. That is the end of the three-part series of Ed Kemper. I hope I hope we did, did it justice. Um, for the listeners, uh, I, this is the most research-intensive episode that I've ever done, and I and I found a lot of information that I feel wasn't covered on other episodes. And on another note, when this comes out, it will be the one-year anniversary of TCK. That's amazing. I can't believe we've done this for one year. 
It all started with John Wayne Bobbitt. And one year in, we're on Big Ed Kemper. We're started still, with a little dick, ended with a little dick. We're still cutting stuff off. Still cutting stuff off. And I said ended, but we're not going anywhere. Uh, this is going to go on until I dive diabetes like Ed Kemper's getting ready to. <laughs> I'm going to give you December of this year. <laughs> Damn. Oh, man. Okay. Four more years. Four more years. <laughs> So the sources that I used for this, the first book was Ed Kemper, Conversations with a Killer by Derry Matera. Great book. A lot of information. Loved it. The second book was Murder Capital of the World by Emerson Murray. Both of them are great books if you want to learn, uh, want to read about Ed Kemper. Like I said, first one, Ed Kemper, Conversations with a Killer. Second one, Murder Capital of the World. I also used a website called edmundkemperstories.com. There's a shitload of information on that website. The best website on Ed Kemper on the internet, I am convinced. A um, lot of pictures, a lot of information. I got a lot of information in this episode from edmundkemperstories.com. And then, of course, um, one of my favorites, the the trusty old newspapers.com, uh, which is worth what you got to pay for it, I will say. It's a great website for research. I'd agree. It's it's just sometimes I'll get on there and uh, it's uh, almost f- more fun to read the articles on that than like scroll Instagram. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. And that's it, Op. That's it. Well, Ed Kemper. Part three. We did it. We did it. It's over. We can finally leave Ed Kemper in our rearview mirror. Well, I'm humbled to say that you say that we did it because I really feel like you did this. This is amazing what you did here. This is a, you've, you put something out there into the ether that, uh, you know, puts the story in a, in a very nice, terrible bow package, bowed package, very blood soaked, cummy. Yeah. I wasn't going to do any of that, but, uh, yep. Yeah. So, um, we just nailed a three-parter so do you got any ideas for the next one i do but i'm not gonna tell you ah shoot fine okay i'm already i'm already already a quarter of the way into the book Ooh, fun can't wait all right well i'll call you tomorrow for that one yeah don't yeah okay i will love you huh what what